You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Rethinking Economics, Lectures and Seminars on World Economics. And this is Lecture 9, entitled Trade, Loan, and Industrial Capital, given in Dornach on August 1st, 1922. The equations I tried to give yesterday are not, of course, mathematical formulas. Rather, like the ones of which I spoke before, They are formulas that must be verified in life itself. Not only that, they must also be conceived in such a way that they actually live within the economic process. Today I must say a few things that may gradually lead us to understand the way in which these things do really live in the economic process. On the one hand, everything that circulates within the total economic process must have a certain value. On the other hand, we must also realize that many things can occur in the economic organism, the value of which is not immediately expressed in the economic processes themselves. Let me give you an example that will serve as an introduction to some further economic concepts. Unruh has described very well in his books on economics such things that reveal, as it were, the more hidden economic connections. I give here only what I myself have followed up and what I can vouch for as being correct, purely as a matter of observation. Although Unruh is a man completely wrapped up in state economics, it is nonetheless true that inasmuch as he thinks politically rather than economically, he is unable in the end to bring these things into their right relationship. The price of rye in certain districts of Central Europe is a striking example of the complicated way in which things take their course in the economic process. If one hears big farmers or estate owners speaking of their work, one often hears them say, We make nothing on the price of rye. On the contrary, we lose on it. What does this really mean? To begin with, it means that these people cannot sell their rye as other things are sold, in the main, at any rate, today, where the price is composed of the costs of raw materials, the costs of production, and a certain margin of profit. Taking the actual prices of rye in this way, we would find that they do not correspond to the costs of production plus a certain profit. On the contrary, they fall far short. If in balancing their accounts farmers were merely to include the actual market prices of rye, the values they would thus insert would undoubtedly influence the balance in a negative direction. As I said, we can follow the matter up and it is absolutely correct. The rye is sold, as we might say, quote, below cost price, close quote. It cannot be so in reality. It is is impossible for this to go on in reality. Yet, apparently, it does go on. 
what happens is this. Rye yields not only grain but also straw, and farmers who sell the grain below cost price sell scarcely any of the straw at all. They use it on their own farms. They use it for their cattle and strike a balance in that way. What they lose on the rye is made up for by the manure they get from the animals. For this is the very best manure, there is no better. It is extremely rich in bacteria, it is the best manure a farmer can have. Thus from the standpoint of their accounts, they get the manure thrown in as a free gift, and in this way in the long run a proper balance is struck. We are thus obliged to posit an economic concept that though it is most important is comparatively hardly considered in the ordinary literature of economics. The concept I would here establish is that of, quote, internal economies, close quote, within the general economic life. You have an internal economy whenever an economic organism, a business, does business within itself, exchanges products within itself. That is to say, it does not sell such products outwardly or buy them from outside, but lets them circulate within the business itself. This I would call an internal economy, as contrasted with the general economy. Wherever such an internal economy is in force, it is quite possible for products to be delivered below the price that would otherwise be economically necessary. Needless to say, this implies that the forming of price within any economic domain is an extremely complicated chain of events. Such connections, as I said, have been observed as matters of pure fact by our economists. There is another chain of events that I have touched upon from a certain point of view, and that must now be regarded also from a different aspect. I mentioned a few days ago that we do not take in, at a glance, all the links in the economic chain. I had us examine the example that a shoemaker falls ill and has an unskilled doctor attend to him. He remains ill and for three weeks cannot manufacture any boots. His products, the boots that he would have manufactured in the three weeks, are therefore unavailable to economic distribution. Suppose instead that he gets a skillful doctor who makes them well within a week, so that he gets an extra two weeks during which to go on making boots as before. Economically speaking, we can now ask, who manufactured the boots? Economically speaking, undoubtedly, at this moment of the economic process, the doctor did. There can be no doubt about it. Here again we come to another point. For you may ask whether the doctor was paid for the boots. No, in reality he was not. For you can make the following calculation. Reckon it up according to the market. What did the boots that the doctor manufactured amount to? And now, if you drop a rather full statement of account, it would have to be a very full one, you can set this off against what he had to be, what, what had to be spent on his training, and you will find in all probability that what was spent on his training was not so very different from the value of all the boots he manufactured and all the stags he shot. It is not regarded as universally characteristic of doctors that they withdraw from economic life, for one week only, patients who would otherwise be withdrawn for three. Let me read that again. 
It is not regarded as universally characteristic of doctors that they withdraw from economic life for one week only patients who would otherwise be withdrawn for three, be that as it may. However, the final balance emerged. We would not make a true calculation in the wider economic sense if we did not strike the balance in this way, setting off against the cost of his trading the boots he manufactures, the stags he shoots, parenthesis, assuming that he cures the hunter more quickly than would otherwise have been the case, close parenthesis, the corn he gathers, and so forth. It is true, of course, that the economic process is very complicated, and so the payment also proves extremely complicated. From all this you can see that it can by no means be said, with certainty at any given place, what the true source of payment for a given thing is within the economic process. We must sometimes go far afield to discover what the real source of such payment is. People who look for mere simplicity in the economic process will never arrive at economic concepts coinciding with reality. They will not get far enough. They will not get to that aspect that is really there, behind the formulas of price, supply, demand, and so forth. These are the very things we must get at. What makes it so difficult to estimate the economic process rightly? It is because outlay and return are often so widely separated. That is why it is difficult to see clearly within the economic process as a whole, what is paid for, what is bought, what is lent and borrowed, and what is freely given. For example, assume for a moment that what I advocated a few days ago is realized. Assume that the masses of capital, arising in one way or another, are withdrawn from the tendency to become congested on the land and are given to the spiritual cultural life. It may be in the form of foundations, scholarships, or other such things. These are free gifts. You will begin to see what happens on the one side of your gigantic account book, since it must be such that it comprises the real economic life in its totality. The boots that the doctor manufactures during the extra two weeks may actually contain an item that you must look for on the other side, under the heading of free gifts. It may well be that he had a scholarship to help him in his training or that he benefited by some foundation. In short, from this point of view, you can raise a weighty question. What are the most productive transformations of capital in the economic process? What are the most productive of all? Follow out such connections as I have just described. Follow especially those portions of available capital that go into foundations, scholarships, and other spiritual cultural goods, in quotes, that in the course of time react to fertilize the whole process of spiritual cultural production and enterprise of every kind. You will perceive that free gifts are the most fruitful thing of all in the whole economic process. We cannot arrive at a healthy economic process unless, in the first place, it is made possible for people to have something to give, and in the second place, unless they have the good will to give what they have in a sensible manner.
Here, then, we have something that enters into the economic process in a very particular way. It is remarkable that this is something that we cannot extract from theoretical concepts. It can transpire only from a wide range of experience, and a wide range of experience will yield it to you, the more so the more you follow the matter up. Indeed, I would recommend that you keep this question in mind when you are choosing subjects for dissertations. What becomes of the free gifts in the whole economic process? You will find that the free gifts are the most productive of all. Capital, freely given, gift capital, is the most productive. Loaned and borrowed capital is less productive in the economic process. And the least productive is what stands directly under purchase and sale. What is paid for immediately on a transaction of purchase and sale is the least fruitful in the economic process. What depends on lending and comes into the economic process through the functions of invested capital is of medium productivity, while what enters into the economic process through free gifts is of the very greatest productivity. For the reason that the work that would otherwise have to be done to earn what is here given freely, or rather the product of that work, is actually saved. We freely give the available proceeds of the economic process, which would only do harm if they were left to congest upon the land. We see, therefore, that at a given moment of its evolution, the economic process gives no real information of itself. The, quote, before and after, close quote, must always be taken into account, but the before and after cannot be taken into account unless they are based on the judgment of people who join together in association and who are able to have a corresponding insight into the past and the future. We have to build the economic process on the insight of those whose feet are planted within the economic process. Once more we come to the same conclusion. It is, generally speaking, a difficult and lengthy business to estimate how the several factors in the economic process play their part in the whole of human life. I mean the material life. From a certain point of view we can speak of trade capital, loan capital, and industrial capital within the economic process. Calculating capital is more or less covered by these three categories. These three are contained in the economic process, moreover, in the most varied ways. You must remember that such internal economies, as we exemplified at the beginning of today's lecture, are scattered everywhere throughout the economic process. Where you have an economic process taking place within a larger whole, it is extremely difficult to say what the respective contributions, quantitatively speaking, of loan capital, industrial capital, and trade capital are to, excuse me, are to the general economic welfare. Yet, it is possible to arrive at reliable concepts if we extend our survey to a wide enough horizon. Let us, to begin with, turn our attention to the economic life of entire nations, or state economies as we must call them, according to the economic life of recent times. 
Take France, for instance. I take it only as one example. The world economic connections of France, especially as they were before World War I, and as they revealed themselves in their effects during the war, are a good example of how loan capital works in the economic process on a larger scale. France always had a certain inclination to invest capital in loans, that is, in effect, to treat loan capital, in parentheses, investment capital, literally as loaned capital. You are probably aware of how these things penetrated into the political sphere, clearly illustrating the harmful effects of the coupling together of the economic life and the life of rights, that is, the political life when it came out in the extensive loans made by France to Russia and Turkey. France exported a very large amount of loan capital to Russia and to Turkey. Even in Germany, though Germany was not exactly in her good books, French capital found a home, for instance when the construction of the Baghdad railway was begun. England withdrew, but France did not withhold her capital from those who stood at the head of the undertaking, Siemens and Gwinner for example. France, therefore, was primarily a lending country. In France one could see how loan capital becomes involved in the whole economic process. There is one historical phenomenon in which you can truly recognize what the interests of loan capital are. Parenthesis, I am not defending or attacking anything, but simply describing things objectively. Close parenthesis. When we turn our attention, say, to private economies or businesses, we shall always find, as any bank will tell you, that the private business people are peace-loving people. They know very well that their interests and dividends will be upset if, just as their capital is nicely invested, a war begins to sweep through the economic connections of the world. Political economists always reckon with the fact that lenders are peace-loving people. That is the reason why it is always possible to say that France was innocent of the war. The moment we want to prove that the war was not desired in France, we need only point to the interests of the numerous small investors, not to the interests of those who urged on the war. In France you always have in the background those who decidedly did not want the war. This fact of history may show us on a large scale what is equally true on a small scale. Those who lend, those who are the happy possessors of capital available for investment, are essentially the people who would like to see the economic life protected, if possible, from disturbance either by events outside it or by catastrophic upheavals within it. The investors are all the more fond of tranquility because it saves them the trouble of having to form an independent judgment. They like to be able to rely on the assurance of someone else that a particular investment is a good thing. In our age, although public opinion is very conceited, there is really very little public opinion in the sense of judgment. We may say that in our time the possession of capital available for investment is generally connected with a very strong faith in authority, both in the economic life and also in other respects. This again clouds the economic judgment to no small extent. Those, for example, who are in any way officially labeled, 
very easily get money lent to them. Personal credit is readily given to anyone with a title or some other official label. This is often the decisive factor. According to how this principle of authority is more or less cultivated, we see the consequences. In the one case, those who really have the stronger personal capabilities will be enabled to enter productively into the economic process. In the other case, it will be simply those with a handle to their names, members of chambers of commerce and so forth, and often those have the, and often those have the name not by reason of genuine ability, but for some quite extraneous reason. It is one thing if such favored people are handed an opportunity to work into the economic life, and quite another if they have to depend on their genuine capabilities being recognized by an untainted public judgment. Here, once again, something elusive enters into the economic life. Parenthesis, in a certain community, it has recently become far too common a practice to use a certain word whenever one fails to keep pace with things with one's clear thinking. In many places recently I have far too often heard this word, the, in quotes, imponderables. I wish to emphasize that I want to avoid this word. All that I wish to point out is how these things, which we would like to take straightforwardly, become complicated, so that we may, presently, have to follow them up by somewhat curved and winding paths. It is unnecessary as soon as this begins to happen to have recourse to the convenient term the imponderables, which we have heard ad nauseum in certain quarters. Close parentheses. So much, at the moment, for loan capital. We will now go on to industrial capital. If we wish to study the essence and function of industrial capital, we shall be able to do so especially well by observing the quick rise of industry in Germany in the decades before World War I, though its history here is hardly an edifying one. We can study it here especially well, because under the influence of the enterprising impulse, industrial capital arose by direct transformation out of loan capital to a greater extent in Germany in the last decades before the war than in any other part of the world. What I said in the first lecture is most decidedly true. In England, for example, trade capital was transformed gradually into industrial capital. In England, industrialism evolved out of trade, and it evolved far more slowly than in Germany, where it sprang up with immense rapidity. Industrialism exists in its pure form, where it transforms not trade capital, but loan capital into industrial capital. It can, therefore, be best studied in its pure form in the life of Germany. Now, the point is that industrial capital, if I may put it so, is really placed between two buffers. The one buffer is raw materials. The other is markets. Industrial capital is obliged, on the one hand, to look around as far as possible for the sources of raw materials, and on the other, to arrange for markets. This is not quite so easy to study in the example of German industry. In German industrialism, you can, rather, study economically 
how industrial capital functions in itself. Still, the emergence of industrialism is evident in all countries during the 19th century and on into the 20th. So you can observe this standing, quote, between two buffers, close quote, everywhere. You need only search out the true facts. As I have said, it is a good thing to control the necessary direction, orientation of our ideas by taking things that can be surveyed as a whole. But you will find, if you are considering smaller economic territories, that extraordinarily difficult paths must sometimes be traced out. It is better to get your orientation and to derive your calculations from wide, comprehensive regions. The paths grow easier if you observe economic organisms on a very large scale. Then, for example, you will perceive how usually the concepts of force or might, which often appear masked under the guise of rights or justice, are realized most strongly where it is a question of opening up new sources of raw materials. We can study this on a large scale, for instance, in the Boer War, where it was mainly a question of opening up the sources of precious metals. The Boer War was a real war for raw materials. Of course, it always showed itself in a kind of mask. Nevertheless, it was a war for raw materials. Again, you have an example of how the economic life unfolds in a political way, playing over into the domain of political power. You have an example of this, for instance, in the military enterprises of Belgium, which had the ivory and rubber of the Congo as their object. From this, you can see how the opening up of sources of raw materials takes place in the economic life. Or again, take the case of North America, which annexed the, which annexed the Spanish possessions in the West Indies because it was looking for sources of raw material, sugar in this instance. In every case, we can see how the search for raw materials very easily drives the purely economic life into the political, toward the development of might or force. This is the one side, the first buffer, if I may call it this. With the search for markets, it is different. It is easy to demonstrate from history that the search for markets does not lead into the political life in the same way. In this case, the plain fact is that human nature does not tend so much toward the use of force. We should have to go to the 19th century for a rather glaring example. I mean the so-called opium war, whereby England conquered for itself the Chinese opium market. Even there it did not go quite so easily by purely military means. Even there, if I may put it so, peaceful persuasion, peaceful politics had not a little to say. For when things began to grow uncomfortably hot, a hundred and forty-one doctors were found to pronounce an expert judgment to the effect that opium is no more harmful than tobacco or tea. Here then politics, peaceful politics, played a certain part. Politics, in any case, is always difficult to keep out. You know the saying of Clausewitz, quote, War is the continuation of politics by other means, close quote. Such definitions are all very well, but by the same method we could establish the proposition, quote, Divorce is the continuation of marriage by other means, close quote. The relationships of life 
can always be represented in a particular light by using this kind of logic, and people admire it. Curiously enough, everyone sees through it at once. If I say, quote, divorce is the continuation of marriage by other means, close quote, but when it is everywhere proclaimed that war is the continuation of politics by other means, they do not notice the absurdity. On the contrary, they admire it. In point of method, I should like to say that if we employ this sort of logic in economics, we shall not advance a step. Speaking of this second buffer, the hunt for markets, we must undoubtedly admit that a far greater part is played by human cleverness, which fluctuates between the extremes of slyness, astuteness, and wise economic guidance. In the arranging of markets, a great deal could be seen at work of all three, particularly in the way they were arranged in those large economic domains that the states themselves had become as politics and economics coalesced. The states themselves did very much in this direction by way of wise guidance and also by way of deceit, cleverness, slyness, and the like. The concepts we need to form with respect to smaller economic domains concerning the relation, say, between the single industrial undertaking and its sources of raw materials and its markets can be made clear and palpable only by considering these matters on a large scale. If it is the functions of trade capital that we desire to study, we should take England as our example, especially in the period when England made its great economic progress. This it did by means of trade. Consequently, its trade capital continued to increase in such a way that England entered quite gently and gradually into the new industrialism. At the time when industrialism was transforming the world, England already had her trade capital. In this early period, therefore, we can study trade capital most readily in England. In more recent times, England has been chosen by Marx as a means of studying the economic functions of industrialism. In the earlier period, the period immediately preceding the creation of modern industrialism, going back, let us say, to the last decades of the 18th century, it is the functions of trade capital, nevertheless, which we can best study in the light of England's economic destiny. Now it cannot be denied that here, either in the open or behind the scenes, the essential thing is always competition. Whether on the large scale, in the economic life of the nation as a whole, where it is mainly based on trade, or within trade or commerce itself, competition is the essential thing. Of course, by the introduction of various ideas of what is decent and proper conduct, it may become very fair, but it is competition, nonetheless. Productivity in trade, productivity that will enable trade capital to be treated in the economic process so that it eventually takes effect as industrial capital, such productivity depends in the end on the tendency of trade capital to accumulate and that is impossible without competition. Thus we shall study the functions of trade capital most clearly by considering the function of competition in the economic life. At the same time, these things are connected with historical changes. 
This is indeed the case. Right up to the first third of the 19th century, if we are considering the world economy that was gradually coming into being as a single whole, such as it was in a high degree before World War I, up to the first third of the 19th century, the economic processes of trade and industry still played the most important part in the economic life. The heyday, the classical age, if I may put it so, of loan capital began only in the 19th century, indeed only toward the second third of the 19th century. And it is at this point that we notice the rise of those institutions that more especially serve the process of lending, I mean the banking system. The classical age of loan capital, and with it the evolution of the banking system, falls into the last two-thirds of the 19th century and the first decades of the 20th. With the evolution of the banking system, borrowing and lending develops on an ever-larger scale, enters more and more as a prime factor into the economic process. At the same time, precisely in connection with lending, a remarkable phenomenon appears. Through the instrumentality of lending on a large scale and accompanying the expansion of the banking system, the control of the circulation of money is withdrawn from the individual. The circulation of money has gradually become a process taking place, I can find no other word to express it, impersonally. Thus, as I said in my first lecture, the time has actually come when money does business on its own account and human beings fluctuate up and down according to how they are drawn into this whole stream of money economics, money business. They are drawn in far more than they imagine. Precisely during the last decades of the 19th century, the circulation of money became objectified. It became impersonal. This brings me to a peculiar phenomenon of the 19th century, particularly of the end of the 19th century. In economics, everything depends on an open-minded consideration of life as a whole. We must gain a clear vision of the whole of life. The phenomenon to which I refer appears, to begin with, in the psychological sphere, but afterward plays a great part in the economic life. It is this. Conditions that were brought about in the first place by very real forces afterward continue rolling on by a kind of social inertia, such as a ball will when you have given it a certain momentum. These conditions go rolling on and on, even after the original impulses have ceased to be active in them. Down to the first third of the nineteenth century, there were true economic impulses present in the whole system of loan and investment. Then, through the instrumentality of the banking system, these economic impulses began to change into purely financial ones. And in this process, the whole thing became not only impersonal, but unnatural. Everything was drawn into the stream of money as it moved itself along pure money business without any natural or personal subject. That is the end toward which, as the nineteenth century drew to a close, everything that had originally been upheld by a personal and natural subject was gravitating. Strangely enough, this subjectless economic life, this subjectless 
circulation of money, was accompanied by another phenomenon. States themselves began to do business out of economic impulses. It was out of such impulses, for example, that they began to colonize. We shall see later what influence colonizing has. Decolonizing, too, will have to be considered in this connection. We can observe very well, as a real economic process, the significance of colonization in the case of England. Fundamentally speaking, England scarcely ever went beyond the kind of colonization that we may perhaps describe as, quote, imperialism with an objective content, close quote. Such imperialism, I mean, as contains a real economic substance, economic meaning. On the other hand, if you take the case of Germany, you need only look at the colonial accounts and you will see that German colonization was burdened from the start with an adverse balance. There were at most tiny areas that showed a favorable balance. And in other countries, too, the tendency crept in merely to enlarge themselves by acquiring colonies. Individual people, Hilferding, for instance, in his book Finance Capital, published in Vienna in 1910, actually called this process, quote, objectless imperialism, close quote, imperialism without an object. These two modern phenomena are particularly instructive. On the one hand, the subjectless circulation of money, impersonal and unnatural and on the other hand, objectless imperialism. Characteristic, as they both are of large-scale economy, their appearance together suggests that one depends upon the other. Such a phenomenon is purely psychological, to begin with, though in the further course it becomes economic. For if we have unproductive colonies, we must pay for them, and that means that they at once affect the economic life. So much for what we had to discuss today, the end of Lecture 9.